Ashish, pronounced right? That's right. What was your first computer? Oh, my first computer was a uh, Compact Rosario Windows 95 uh, Pentium 1 with MMX uh, technology. And I think we used to joke about how heavy it is, even though it was just 2 gigabytes okay. hard drive with 16 MB RAM. Wow. And this was in uh, 95 back in India. Wow. So you're very young. Oh, uh, yes. So what did you do with the computer? Uh, it was mainly for playing games with the occasional, uh, you know, playing around with QBasic and GW Basic. Um, just, yeah, it, was, it wasn't, I, okay. I, I didn't start programming very early. What games? Oh, golf, right? Game. Golf, chess, golf. Uh, mainly, yeah, well, <laughs> chess. And, uh, and because this was the MMX technology, uh, I also played some multimedia games like, um, uh, I forget the name of, I think it was Pod Car Racing. Ah, uh, yeah, hey, man, chess was just joke, you know. Chess. <laughs> no, I used to play chess. Ah, really? Uh, um, me as well, but not with computer was. Okay. Do, yeah. You are from India, so cricket. Was there you no know, cricket? Mm -hmm. Virtual cricket? Yeah, now that you remind me, yes. We used to play this uh, this game called Allen Border Cricket on, in the MS-DOS world. So no kidding. Play. This was another joke. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I thought, you know, I, uh, what, what I think is, you know, you played, you know, Quake or something like this, and now you're uh, telling me stories about cricket and, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's true. I not so much quake and first person person shooters, but uh, but yeah, definitely more in the car racing, the sports. Yeah. With Pentium, sure. what I played, you know, Dark Forces. It was Star Wars uh, game. Like it was like a quake. It was with Star Wars. So I was fascinated by the game. Probably Pentium two or three, not one. But yeah, mm -hmm. uh, your Pentium was seventy five. You remember seventy five megahertz? I think no. Yeah, megahertz. Yes, I think so. I think it was a, it was a Pentium five eight six. I forget what. Uh, okay. The what I remember yeah. was there's one 66 and the other one was 75 and then 133, I guess. And I got the first uh -huh. one 75, so it was pros. It was not the 66. Nice. Uh, and why QBasic and GV, uh, GW Basic? This is uh, because on P on PC is not you know the <laughs> natural choice to pick Basic. So I used to take some computer classes at the time, and uh, this was okay. something that we we came across over there. Uh, school curriculum was also focused on on the basic programming languages. So then. Um, how you started programming or how it happened? Oh, I started programming when uh, I think it was eighth grade onwards. Uh, and I wanted to do some cool, um, you know, learn something that I could essentially command the computer to do and try to automate bits and pieces of my life. Oh. Um, yeah. What automate? I mean, what do you wanted to automate? What? I mean, I, I was essentially trying to, trying to recreate a calculator from scratch, right? And uh, one of the early things was, okay, to do all sorts of, uh, you know, math without essentially pulling up a calculator, uh, just you know, essentially writing a program from scratch to do that. So, yeah. Incredible. Mm -hmm. So, uh, amazing guy, Thank you know. You. A, so, you were fascinated by math or you had to do this? Uh, no, I was fascinated by math. Uh, I, you know, always was interested in, you know, essentially finding uh, efficient ways of, you know, of executing something end-to-end. -end. Uh, finding, you know, my first job was also in the financial services industry, so that, big, you know, was a lot more helpful at the time. Okay. And essentially come up with financial models uh, and also mathematical models that I could then uh, validate quickly and then put into production. But this was later, right? This was much later. But, you know, it, that, that thing always kept ticking in my mind. And I think that was one of the core drivers to get into programming and computer science. In okay. So your first program was, was still basic. So you learned QBasic and GW basic. And what was the next language? Oh, the, the next language was, um, I believe it was C, C and C++. Why that? How you learned that? Uh, this was also something we did while we were in high school um, and, and through the years. And even through through engineering school, we had the same thing. Uh, before Java became more mainstream in, in college, uh, that's what we focused on, DNC++. And what you did in your leisure? In my leisure, I used to read about algorithms. Really? Yeah. I mean, well, I always thought that programming was... Uh, well. Programming was a way to just put that in motion, but uh, you know the, the math behind that used to always fascinate me, and that's what I used to uh, like to dabble with. Yeah, this is incredible. So you, you in your yeah. DJ, you know, instead of go playing something, you know, football or whatever, cricket, you you just <laughs> enjoyed algorithms. Yeah, um, yeah, it was fun. About algorithms, um, I also during my study, I uh, I tried to learn algorithms, but it was not easy for me just to read the book and get the algorithm. So what I did is mm -hmm. I implemented them. So um, mm -hmm. I, I had a lot more fun in just, you know, doing something with it. Were you more the right. theoretical guy? So you, was it enough for you to to read the book or you tried to tr try it out on your computer or in the machine? Yeah, no, so, I mean, definitely we, uh, I used to do a bit of both, uh, but I, I like the theory aspect of it. Uh, you know, the, the fact that you could actually model the whole thing uh, on paper and then put it in motion uh, was okay. a lot more valuable. Yeah. 
How you model that? Just essentially writing out the math equations for the base case and the incremental case. So if it works for n is equal to zero and n equal to one, and then n equal to n, then you essentially can scale out the model as much as possible. Um, but yeah, it was it was a more more academic approach to that. Okay, so let's say a f- for loop with a if statement. Mm-hmm. How to do it in math? For loop with an if statement. Yeah, for loop and inside the for loop is an if statement with a filter mm-hmm. that you know every model or two happen something. You have one, two sets, you know, one set is odds and the other not. Is it possible to model like this, you know, in math or already what I said, is this already a solution to your model? You know what I mean? So, yeah, I mean, of course you can model everything in math. That's that's how flexible uh, math makes it. Uh, the idea is obviously you, you obviously have a set of data to work with and you identify which ones would actually uh, go through the for loop. And in this case, it's yeah. everything. But then within that, the block that it will be satisfied will be managed by the if loop. And then that's where the, the probability comes into. Now, so what I'm interested in, you know, how to express a program in math. So what I understand is you have a kind of, you know, a problem. So you can model the problem mm-hmm. in math. But uh, the mm-hmm. design of a programming language, I cannot just imagine how to write this in with math equations for instance uh, if statement or something like this this is like too low level right you wouldn't do this in math mm-hmm. or well um, no i mean not not specifically just model every line of uh, no. you know of your program in math it's more about the you know calculating the complexity to identify which one makes more sense when okay. you have two possible solutions to do it like big o notation something like that right that's right that's right yeah oh okay this is what i get okay yeah. but even yeah. even a sorting algorithm would be challenging in math right isn't it so yeah could you just express you know quick sort in math yeah well, not not always. I mean, with with quicksort, obviously, you we have the probabilistic uh, aspect of picking um, the I forget what we used to call it uh, the pivot around which you would mm-hmm. you would sort all the elements. Uh, and and no, that's that's definitely something that's already available in math. It's actually well documented, uh, pretty much in every algorithm book out there. Mm-hmm. No, my algorithm book yeah. was actually in C. I think uh, it was not uh, with mass, oh, okay. with math equation. Okay, interesting. Uh, okay. Because I, I always wonder myself, you know, how easy it is to just read a mathematic paper and immediately get it, what it means. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. You got it? You could just read, you know, math equations and you know what's, what it means immediately or not? No, I would have to dabble with it a little bit and, like, draw, you know, the, the actual diagrams and stuff just to make sure I, I get it. Essentially talk to myself. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I will even try. No, I wish I could do that. I wish I wish I could do that. Just the question that is, and, and are there people out there which are able to understand it, you know? How we read code, whether there are people who can read math the same way. Do you believe that? I I believe I have seen some folks. Uh, well, I, I think I know some folks who can do that. Okay, um, perfect. So this is... Yeah. So, sorry for the you know distraction from our actual, actual topic. Ah, no. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> okay, so no kidding. You started C and C++ to be... Hmm. to to solve math problems faster, right? Mm-hmm. And why QBasic was not enough? Because you knew that C is faster and or you had uh, algorithms available in C and C++? Uh, well, partially that, and partially because obviously when you look at what the industry is pivoting towards, you want to make sure uh, you get you get the tools that actually hold value uh, out there. Ah. Uh, basic and, and, and stuff that essentially moved away from the mainstream. So you were business-driven uh, as well, right? So it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> how old were you? Have, yes. you sta- have you if you started to program C? How old mm-hmm. were you? Uh, I was in I was in eighth eighth grade, so I think that was about thirteen, fourteen. Yeah, about thirteen, fourteen years old. Amazing. And you had a life uh, outside the computer, so you did something outside or not? Uh, <laughs> yes. I did, I did. Okay. Right now, I did. How much time you spend with the computers in eighth grade? I'm just curious. Oh, we we were time boxed. Yeah, it had to be a couple hours a, a day at max. Uh, couple hours a day is at max. Okay, so there's a. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and, and only, only a few times a week, just so that uh, we didn't get addicted. Because that was the thing. So, and then you started to study, you said. Uh, or you, you mentioned mm-hmm. ma- engineering school. What is an engineering school? Is it something between high school and study and university? Uh, well, no, that's that's uh, university, essentially. Okay. That's the four-year, four-year undergrad. Yeah. And what, what you did at the university? Which? Computer science? Yeah, so I, uh, computer engineering. Computer uh, engineering. We didn't really have a computer science focus. Yeah, but we, yeah, so it was computer engineering. It was obviously a mix of the you know the actual microprocessor bits along with yeah. programming principles. The same, yeah. Okay. And where was it? Which university? Uh, this was this was in the University of Mumbai in, in India. And it was nice experience. It was a very good experience. Yeah. It was crowded. We university. had a lot of like-minded people. And and how how to imagine such university? You know, is this a, a large one, a small one, or what? What's yeah. 
So, so the university uh, actually manages multiple colleges. Uh, okay. You know, individual four-year four-year schools where you actually go and get your instruction. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, but the the degrees are always given by the university, obviously. Okay. So it's a little more of a distributed model if you uh, if you try to use computer science paradigms over there, uh, wherein you would essentially enroll with the college which is affiliated with the university. Okay. And uh, yeah. was it a relaxed studying, or was it stressful for you? You enjoyed that, or what? Yeah, it, was, it was enjoyable. It was definitely enjoyable. There were a lot of like-minded people who would essentially you know, want to get you know achieve similar goals. You wanted just to um, read, you know, algorithms all the day, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> that's that's one way to do it. We did have a lot of fun too. <laughs> no, not not what I initially portrayed in uh, in my life, but yeah, we we did have a lot of non-technical uh, experiences yeah. as okay. well. Okay. Now, otherwise, I would say, okay, now we have to you know to stop the podcast because I'm you no, know, I, I cannot just follow your your ideas. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, nice. And uh, uh, what you did, you know, something I don't know, not interesting, rather than something different to math in C and C plus plus was something like this, or we just fully focus on math. Well, one of the most interesting things that I really uh, enjoyed doing was essentially rewriting an, an entire SMTP server uh, using only C with Berkeley sockets. Uh, and uh, and that's one of the you know obviously we were like okay let's do let's make a web server that was pretty straightforward you can you know you open a, a socket from the client to the server you open up a bunch of HTML files and you you send them back on the wire and render it on the browser uh, but essentially changing that and saying okay you know what I'm going to start a, a command line prompt send an actual email and then have it replicated across the different uh, instances of an SMTP server and using only C with Berkeley uh, sockets uh, I think that was one of the most interesting projects I did. This is how, uh, how N- this is how Nginx ha- happened, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> no, SMTP. Yeah. What I remember is Hello, right? Not Hello, right? Hello. 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 Yeah, exactly. That's right. You could do actually Hello, S- SMTP with standard. I tried the same with Java. Mm-hmm. Actually, I think it even worked. Uh, basic stuff with Java. I used the Java socket to mm-hmm. do similar thing. But I was actually yeah. not disappointed, but uh, concerned how primitive it was that we have actually parsed the strings and sent Hello back and forth. For me, it was like I started yeah. with SMTP. I was like, "Wow, this is something interesting." And then I look at the code. Yeah. So like, actually, just sending those strings back and forth, and it and it still works. When you learn Java, yeah. So in my four-year program, we did uh, quite a bit of Java, but I kept uh, falling back in love with C and C plus mm-hmm. plus. Uh, and you know, it, it was a sadistic notion of wanting to see uh, segmentation fault when something goes wrong, as opposed to a nicely formatted error message. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but then once I came to grad school, uh, we really uh, you know, went deeper into Java and uh, and through my first job uh, as an engineer, uh, I played a lot with Java and Spring and that ecosystem as well. Which Java version was it? Oh, it was I think it was one point six. When, wow, one point four. Yeah, one point four when I started, and then one point six. Okay, this was pretty <laughs> modern times. I mean, uh, one yeah. six. It was uh, already incredible. So one six one seven. So you already knew annotations, right? And yeah. you did Spring with lots of XML, or already with annotations? You remember that? Lots of XML. Uh, obviously, using all of Spring's core competency and stuff like um, you know dependency injection. And you enjoyed the XML uh, we, part? Uh, yes and no. I liked how uh, you know you could obviously do everything in configuration for the most part. Uh, it made so obviously once you were through with the learning curve, it made maintainability a whole lot easier. It was easier to document. I, I appreciate that there's an there's an option to do everything in you know in configuration that essentially can then be piped into your documentation as well. Okay, I also uh, appreciate that, but I never did it in the last ten years. <laughs> I know that it's possible, but it, yeah. believe me, in usual business projects, you know, you have one path and you never have to reconfigure that. This is the sad truth. Okay, That's so uh, what was your first job? Fin- financial industry, you said? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was a quantitative developer uh, associate with uh, Morgan Stanley. Oh, uh, but no, no more in Mumbai, right? No, no, this was, this was in New York, right after my grad school. Yeah. So um, after university, you move away from India to where? So I moved to New York, yeah, and then I was enrolled for my, my grad studies uh, in, uh, at Columbia University. Uh-huh. And you like it more uh, than my... Mumbai, Mumbai, or is it, was it equally nice, or what was your impression? It's it's comparable. Big city, overcrowded, lots of people, lots okay. of chaos, comfortable chaos. Okay, so I say okay, chaos is chaos, no difference. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, and after it's, it's always a melting pot. Yep. Okay, and after the study, what you did then? You you started at the financial financial yeah. district. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And did yeah, a lot so of so you enjoyed uh, XML with Spring? 
I did enjoy XML with Spring. Again, like I mentioned, uh, the fact that things could be more standardized, it was easier to get in, get your hands dirty with the code, uh, actually understand what you were looking to build end to end, even though you know you need to have uh, you need to have some domain knowledge in the space. Uh, and while you build that up, at the very least, the rest of the stuff is a little more standardized in terms of you know, what's your configuration look like, what sort of code you need to write. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a more familiar space to be. This was your last job before, you know, Microsoft or was something in between? Mm-hmm. No, this was my job uh, after which I moved to Microsoft. How you found the job at Microsoft and how you applied? This is the interesting part. Well, I was looking for, you know, obviously I had done a lot of hands-on uh, programming and uh, I wanted to, you know, I kind of uh, thought I could empathize with the issues that developers face. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I essentially started looking for roles uh, where I could help build tools for developers. Okay. Uh, and really energize energize their uh, essentially modernization and solve their core complaints and problems with with the stack that they work with. Okay. Uh, so that's what I essentially packaged up, and I started applying uh, to Microsoft, and uh, yeah, got lucky. Uh, and this was the Asia, Microsoft Asia, right? No, this was this was Microsoft in Seattle, in the in the Redmond, Washington area. Yeah, but uh, for the Asia Cloud for Microsoft, right? Oh, yeah, for the Azure Cloud, yep. Because otherwise, I would say, you know, why Microsoft cares about developers is just because of the cloud, right? Otherwise, you would be .NET, something like this. Uh, well, yeah, so so the, the couple of things, right? Obviously, Microsoft is a productivity company that wants to make, uh, you know, empower every person and an individual and organization on the planet to achieve more. Um, and, uh, you know, as it, as it plays out in the context of the cloud, is to essentially build out the right tools that developers and startups and yeah. and anyone who is essentially building a solution can definitely leverage. To move more developers uh, to use Microsoft Cloud, basically, right? So this is the basic idea behind, yeah. Um, by the way, uh, I was um, I was on the other way, on the other side mm-hmm. of the equation. So I, I worked, uh, I really like Sun Microsystems and, and then mm-hmm. Microsoft was never on my radar, but recently it is almost like the Sun Microsoft Sun Microsystems from back then. You know, it's this complete different company which I really mm-hmm. appreciate right now. And uh, I don't know whether you know Bruno Borges. You know Bruno? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we work with him. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And uh, yeah, yeah. This is also uh, we get on the show and and yeah. So when when you started at Microsoft? When was it? Mm-hmm. When? So it was twenty twenty sixteen. Uh, early okay. 2016. Yep. So, what you achieved in the four so, years? Come, what, what, what you did at Microsoft? So, how, what, what, which Asia's department are you working, or what are you are doing exactly? Sure. Yeah. So, so I'm a program or product manager on the Azure messaging team, and I work on Azure Service Bus. Product manager. Uh, so you are a big deal, hell. We have a no uh, a, 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 a casual conversation, and you are like you know the uh, highest uh, guy on the uh, the Asia Microsoft oh. team. Okay. How, how yeah. it's called? Well, Mag- so messaging team. Messaging team. Azure messaging. So, so this takes care of all your messaging, command, eventing scenarios. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we essentially manage uh, Azure Service Bus, Azure Event Hubs, Azure Event Grid, Azure Relay, um, and you know that takes care of all of your command control, event streaming, uh, you know, reactive event programming. Mm-hmm. Um, and me personally, I work on the Service Bus uh, team. The Service Bus. Which hopefully has service. nothing to do with the enterprise service bus, right? Which no, except for <laughs> the fact that its its paradigms are comparable with with message queuing and point to point and pop up semantics. Okay, yeah. I already suspected that uh, you might uh, work in this area, and I take a look at the Microsoft. Uh, sorry, yeah, Microsoft Asia Service Bus. This is the official name, right? Mm. Looks mm-hmm. interesting. That's right. So uh, yeah. it is seems like uh, in Java, I would communicate with AMQP with the service, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What I don't get, so I took a look at the spec, and uh, they are like a two flavors. The one is like mm-hmm. uh, using the Microsoft uh, APIs, and the other one using GMS two O. That's right. Yep. But if I would, yeah, use, so, so, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Yeah, and what I wanted to ask you because usually, actually, well, something funny. Um, a little bit of history. Uh, I think fifteen years ago, I wrote a blog. Uh, what happened was at Sun Microsystems time. There was a project called Glassfish, like a server. Bruno Borges knows about mm-hmm. that. And mm-hmm. um, and the uh, Glassfish was part of Java E, and uh, Java E comes with GMS. Mm-hmm. And there was another project at Sun Microsystem called the Project Darkstar. And the Project mm-hmm. Darkstar was a gaming server. Right. And they used Glassfish. And what mm-hmm. they wanted to do is to have an own messaging stuff just for the gaming server, right? So, I see. Yep. And I said, okay. The lower latency. Yeah, yeah. and I said, okay. But why you don't not just implementing GMS, you know? Then we could get no low latency GMS. And the answer from then mm-hmm. was 
we cannot do this because GMS doesn't scale. You say, hey, look, GMS is just a set of interfaces. It can scale or not. There is nothing, you know, right. inherited in an interface that it doesn't scale. No, we cannot use GMS. It doesn't scale. And this went back and forth. I documented even parts mm -hmm. of this conversation on my, uh, on my blog as a comment. Mm -hmm. and, um, and what I saw in the Asia is you can use GMS too, but you're mentioning AMQP. Actually, mm -hmm. if I would use the Asia service bus GMS, it would just communicate to your cloud regardless what happens behind the scenes, right? I don't care about the protocol. I could just use GMS 2.0 and go ahead, right? That's exactly right. So obviously, AMQP is the is a new industry standard that we're you know we've been pushing for. Uh, it's advanced message queuing protocol. Yeah. And, and and this is uh, a big is... misunderstanding that uh, GMS is nothing about protocol. It's just a set of interfaces. Mm -hmm. And AMQP is one of the view protocols, which is standardized, right? That's right. So yeah, so GMS itself is is just a set of interfaces, yeah. like you rightly said. Yeah, it's just the the implementation is over AMQP, mm -hmm. uh, and AMQP is essentially uh, you know the, the new standard that's you know leveraged by pretty much you know most of the enterprise yeah. brokers out there. ActiveMQ, yeah. uh, Rabbit does Rabbit does a AMQP point nine, um, but yeah, it's it's essentially out there. And for for most folks, obviously the protocol you know implementation is just another implementation detail. Yeah. Um, it does. It's not something that the application typically cares about, mm -hmm. uh, unless you have, you know, you know, super users who have, um, you know, a specific preference of which ports they want to open and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's essentially it's just an implementation detail for. Okay. Customers. So let's think about yeah. some potential use cases. What what I thought what I could do with your um, service bus is the following. Mm -hmm. I can have my server runtime or whatever. And mm -hmm. uh, hopefully without XML. So this is just my world, right? <laughs> and then, and then, your choice. Yeah, yeah, of course. And then send a message uh, to a topic mm -hmm. or queue. Let's say to Thanks. my local. May, let's make a little bit more complicated ActiveMQ server. Mm -hmm. And this mm -hmm. ActiveMQ uh, already talks whatever, and I could register a listener, which uh, re receives the message and and pushes with JMS or without. It doesn't matter via AMQP right. to the Microsoft Azure cloud. And then I could mm -hmm. have, you know, Asia functions or whatever, and uh, this would be the integration point between my enterprise or the Asia, right? This is some valid use case where I can push from my cloud bursting, whatever, from my local private cloud, some messages to your mm -hmm. cloud, and now we are integrated. Because if this is in Asia service bus, everything is transactional already in the cloud, and then a function can wake up, read it, consume it, and do something with it, right? That's that's exactly right. And, and you know, the, the core focus here is, you know, a couple of things, right? Firstly, you have the you have the same familiar API that you use to leverage uh, you know send and receive uh, functionality onto a queue, mm -hmm. right? And and what that means is that you know in the example that you mentioned, obviously you're using ActiveMQ as a local queue that will then forward to Service Bus. Right, so we're going one step, yeah, we're we're going one step further and saying if you have an existing application uh, that's living on premises and that's leveraging you know some sort of message queuing uh, solution or JMS providers, let's say. Uh, and you want to essentially move it uh, to a modern cloud-native solution, a cloud-based, you, know, uh, you know, fully managed enterprise pass or enterprise messaging pass, which is service bus. All you need to do is essentially plug in the dependency in your POM XML and just change the configuration settings to point to service bus, and you're good to go, right? Mm -hmm. So your application code is completely agnostic of which JMS provider or JMS broker you're talking to, and service bus now will is now supporting it as a first-class experience. Yeah. Right? What, so, I, what so, I will need to do is a little bit of bootstrap, I guess, you know, the connection factory hmm. get or something, right? So I will have to package, otherwise it just won't work, but yeah. So there will be probably one line of Microsoft-specific code, which I can hide uh, behind right. a producer, and then I could talk directly mm -hmm. to the cloud, right? Uh, that's, that's exactly right. And actually with the Spring, you know, obviously we have a Spring starter as well. Uh, and in that case, you essentially don't need any Microsoft-specific code. Mm -hmm. All you do is essentially plug in your, your Palm XML, and in the application.properties file, you just plug in the service bus connection string in the timeout, and boom, you're you're all ready. You heard about Quarkus? Uh, about what? Quarkus. No, I'm not. I'm not too familiar. This is not 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 possible. Almost. So Quarkus is uh, <laughs> like you know uh, something like uh, Java e, Jakarta e, um, mm -hmm. modern runtime, very modern runtime. And why mm -hmm. I uh, I remember Quarkus right now is because what you said is you are using familiar APIs. And it's exactly the same with Quarkus. What they are saying, uh -huh. they're using uh, familiar APIs with modern runtime. Mm -hmm. And Quarkus now it takes off. It just uses, you know, the micro profile and Java APIs, also parts of GMS. Right. And this would be a natural fit because in Quarkus, I could just uh, have an extension which pushes directly to the Microsoft Cloud. And lots of my projects right now are using Quarkus. Take a look at Quarkus. Mm -hmm. You will like it. 
So you could I will, I will com- com- completely, completely integrate Quarkus or uh, JMS in Quarkus without just with extension, for instance. And um, mm-hmm. and um, regardless, so most important is JMS 2.0. This is the integration point. So it means in most application servers, you will need like a service locator. In Spring, you can use <laughs> XML to configure that. In mm-hmm. Quarkus, you mm-hmm. would write extension to uh, to um, instantiate the factory, and it will be completely integrated behind the scenes. Oh, um, mm-hmm. you know Graal VM? Graal? Mm-hmm. So Quarkus mm-hmm. uses Graal. Uh- Graal, yeah. which cross-compiles Java code to bytecode, which makes Quarkus tiny. I see. Yep. This is the the, mm-hmm. the, the, the thing. Okay. So we have the integration point with your Azure cloud. So what what mm-hmm. else? What is the another you know use case of the enterprise? Uh, sorry, no enterprise service bus. Azure service bus. Uh, ASB. Mm-hmm. So we have now integration point with the uh, on-prem. What you can do? Mm-hmm. What else? What would be the killer use cases of of you are the product owner? So tell me something. Yeah. Absolutely. So obviously, you know, with with uh, so there are two things, right? The two themes that we try to focus on is lift shift and modernize. You know, typically when you when you're talking about a cloud based service, you're saying lift shift or modernize. Mm-hmm. We want to focus on both, right? So let's say if you're coming in with an existing application, fairly legacy that you want to essentially modernize, you you move the compute bits and you take the the broker and you'll be like, okay, I'm going to move. Uh, you know, I'll probably think about hosting. Uh, you know, my my existing broker on, on an Azure IaaS setup. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or you know what? Hey, we have Service Bus. It uses the same thing. Now you can replace your Azure IaaS hosted broker with Service Bus, which is a fully managed pass. Uh, and then on the receive side, let's say you're doing something that's kind of pre-baked or you know something that we can leverage a serverless solution for. Uh, you know, as you as you migrate your application stack into Azure, you can start considering moving those or replacing those bits with logic apps and functions, simply because we have that native integration with everything. Uh, you know, everything that's Azure first party. Yeah. So, so you could have, and you you kind of touched upon this earlier, where you have the Azure Logic App or Functions, which is essentially uh, listening in on a queue or a subscription. Uh, and at that point, you know, if a message comes in and you, you know, let's say you're running a CRM system and you want to send your customers an email, uh, you know, reminding them of an appointment or something, uh, you could just have a, a pre-baked Logic App that takes that message, take puts it into an email template, and just fires it off to all these customers. Okay. In the past, you may be having some sort of custom code that uses, you know, Java X Mail and a whole bunch of other stuff that was leveraging this. It's all gone now. You have a serverless solution that you do, uh, you know, as a pay-as-you-go consumption plan. Yeah, uh, but, and you're good to go. Yeah, in my Java X Mail, I would have you no know, to specify the session and some configuration. And in your case, right. I would still have to specify something, right? No, you would, you would, but you don't have, no longer have to worry about essentially hosting that on an AKS cluster or a VM. You can just have a, a logic app that's all set up. Uh, for you to just leverage pre-baked. Yeah, I know what you mean. For managers, mm-hmm. it makes sense. For me as a developer, I never had to manage the class because it was already a part of the system, you know? Right, right, right. You, you know what I mean? So, but um, yeah. I, I get your point. It, um, I mean, this is not a killer use case. What it could mm-hmm. be, no, so- a killer use case, mm-hmm. let's say um, I have another modern app which already runs mm-hmm. on Microsoft Asia, and this mm-hmm. app is hooked to, let's say, I don't know, Asia queuing system or whatever. You have? I see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this Azure queuing system is uh, the native no communication system in the clouds. What mm-hmm. I can do right now is I can send a JMS message, which is consumed by Azure function, and this Azure function stores that natively. It's like an adapter, you know, to your native queuing system mm-hmm. or Kafka, or whatever. And this is the t- mm-hmm. integration point, because with Java implementing logic, we are pretty fast nowadays. So there is not a lots of value to moving this existing function to a uh, to a um, Azure function. But um, right. I think the big deal is, uh, you know, integration with already existing cloud-native systems with completely different, different protocols. I don't know, you know, machine learning models or whatever you have, so whatever exists. And I would like, you know, to talk to this thing. I could say mm-hmm. this, uh, your service bus is, sits in the middle. It understands all the Asia technologies. I just push the right. image, then a given function wakes up and does something yeah. for me, right? Mm-hmm. This could be an integration yeah. point. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so you know, from from the point of you know having logic apps and functions, that essentially opens up uh, you know the door to all of the other Azure pieces that you can leverage. Mm-hmm. Uh, simply because you know, that's essentially the, you know, the the starting point of the front door for everything else. Yeah. What, uh, what, the, what the, is a logic app? What is a logic app? Because I use this Asia Asia Kubernetes system. Is a Kubernetes hmm. logic app? No. No. So, so logic app is essentially uh, a no and low code uh, pre baked 
a set of steps that you can use a UI to configure. You ah. have the Logic Apps Designer. Like a step function, and like a workflow yeah. with functions. Yeah, it's, it's exactly. It's, it's more of a workflow. The step function will be more towards functions, but uh, Logic Apps is essentially workflows that you can you know design using uh, you know a UI or whatever else, and then essentially you can package it up and either run it serverless on Azure itself or in an integrated service environment uh, that you that you fully control. Is the Logic App part the of the Azure service bus? It is. No, it's a separate uh, product. Okay. Uh, Azure Logic Apps. Um, but yeah, in in the past, we've essentially sat in the in the serverless PaaS uh, ecosystem and uh, part of the integration work streams. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's it's definitely got you know we're we're obviously going to make our integrations better, but even right now, it's in uh, it's essentially one of the more modern applications touching service bus. Okay, so it's like a visual designer which creates workflows and the workflows gets persisted and uh, the every task in the workflow is, is probably a function which wakes up you passes the context from outside it executes mm -hmm. some logic and then it just disappears right it's stateless again that's right yeah okay yeah so, so this is less about custom code it's more about um, you know specifically workflows which leverage other integrations with let's say your outlook or office 365 account you know, where you want to send an email or you would like to, you know, essentially have a forwarding logic where you want to take stuff from one queue and push oh. to another queue. Yeah. Are you so, aware of Apache Camel? Uh, I have, yeah. I so have, something uh, similar to Camel, but visual and without coding, right? That's right. Yep. Okay. So this JMS2O, um, which features are you not supporting? You know that? So uh, so in the past, we used to have JMS functionality, which was more of a, of a artifact or, or, you know, just, just as a something we... We supported for free because we were AMQP. Uh, so that was about so you know there's a there's something called the JMS Technical Compatibility Kit, which is a percentage score of how many features you support. Yeah. So we said about thirty eight percent before. We are now up to more than ninety percent, wow. and the idea is to essentially close the gap completely, right? Um, and and so the idea is that we want to get to full JMS two point parity. Mm -hmm. Um, and what that means is essentially we will have all the features. Every JMS API contract will be supported. Uh, we already support these in our preview as well, which is you know queues, topics, temporary queues, temporary topics, uh, subscriptions, all four kinds, which is you know all possible combinations of shared and durable. So shared durable, shared non durable, unshared durable, and unshared non durable. Amazing. Uh, so yeah. Uh, yeah, so so these are these are already available. There's also the concept of queue browsers and topic browsers, and all of these are supported with message selectors, uh, which is similar to our filtering functionality that we already have with Service Bus filters and actions. For the for the uh, audience, but, the uh, the uh, selectors is like the uh, SQL ninety nine syntax where you can you know mm -hmm. filter the message headers and say, okay, I'm only interested in this functionality. Not bad. Okay. That's good. That's, that's right, yeah. So essentially, when you send to a queue or a topic, and you know, obviously with the queue, it remains on the queue, but with the topic, it's forwarded to a subscription, you can selectively forward your messages to multiple subscriptions depending on which one matches the filter condition. Mm -hmm. um, and that's basically where uh, you know, a, lot of, a lot of complicated workflows can be orchestrated uh, right within the service bus or the message broker itself. Mm -hmm. So that now your applications will only look at the data they need to, and they can start, you know, pulling and processing those appropriately. Uh, right. How durable can it be? So, uh, for how long the message get, you know, retained for me or, or stored? So, when you pick a durable entity, right, it it was persisted to the service bus storage uh, for as long as you need it, right? And what that means is that when you send a message and we act it back to you, that means it's triple replicated. So we have three copies on our on our backend storage, mm -hmm. and only then we will act it back to your sender application. Same thing applies for the receiver as well. When you receive a message, we essentially lock the message on your behalf, and only after we get the positive acknowledgement to remove the message, uh, you know, from your receiver application, that's when we will actually go ahead and delete it from the store. Okay. Right. So, so in in a standard JMS uh, setup, you can have a message handler wherein you know, depends on how you you uh, program your JMS session. You would say, I want to do an auto acknowledge, which means mm -hmm. at the start of the block, please lock this message for me. I will take my time to process it, and then when I go and complete the message, or when the block ends, I will go and essentially indicate to the broker that now the message is processed by me, and now you can remove it from the queue. Okay. Is is in your case uh, uh, duplicates uh, DAPS okay acknowledge faster, or doesn't make any difference? You know that. So so that's the thing. So right now, while we are at the ninety one percent, we we support uh, auto acknowledge. Uh, but as we as we close the gap, we're going to support the session transacted and the other modes as well. Okay. Uh, 
Yeah. Because back then, you know, the duplicates archaic knowledge was faster than the others. This was the only reason to use it because some providers right. were faster and the others were not. Mm-hmm. What it means is I will have to control transactions manually because they cannot be managed in your case, right? There is no wrapper around. Usually on application server, if you mm-hmm. have, for instance, a message-driven bean, which is, you know, uh, listens mm-hmm. to, to, uh, to a message, uh, the server right. will uh, begin a committed transaction, and on, uh, on runtime errors, it will just uh, roll back the transaction. In, mm-hmm. in your particular case, on errors, if they happen, yeah, it has the same, right? So the, uh, the yeah, t- yeah. And do you have something? So, like so a- yeah, go ahead. So, so actually, when when there's an error, you will you will essentially throw an exception, and then that will essentially give up the um, the message lock or the the message lease that the the JMS receiver has uh, has procured on the message. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, with the so the transactional scope uh, is is still localized uh, to a specific service bus entity, mm-hmm. right? So we are expanding that to essentially have cross entity. So across one queue, one topic, or mm-hmm. two queues, you will have a transactional scope. Uh, one of the things I, I want to call out that we don't support yet is the distributed transaction. Yeah. So there are there are you know obviously enterprise uh, systems that require you to pull a message from the queue, put something into a the SQL database, you go and actually complete the message. Uh, that is something we don't support right now. Yeah, but I mean, this is really hard to support. This is two, a two-phase, com- two-phase commit protocol two-phase has a, uh, is uh, almost impossible to implement, right? And uh, that's. I wouldn't. I would say you you can try that, but if you start with that, it is really hard, you know, to do it right. I would say that is that is correct, and actually, it's partially you know with the fact that hosting a, a transaction manager is. Uh, you know, something we are still looking into. Yeah. Um, to actually support this across any two, um, you know, any service bus and another uh, system that you want to essentially extend the scope of your transaction to. If you start uh, with this so, work, you can you can start you know reading the algorithm books again. I think. <laughs> <laughs> lots of to, to lo- validate, lo- lots to of validate everything. yeah the two phase commit. You know what happens if one doesn't answer exactly? This is now back to to your grad school. I would say. So don't start uh-huh. it. You know yeah. you won't go out. You know very soon. <laughs> uh, oh yes. Cool. But this is actually um, this is impressive. And uh, how how well does it scale? Can I have a number? how many listeners can a topic have? For instance, do you have some tests, or is it doesn't matter? Or so so the service bus limits still apply. What so what we did is essentially uh, you know we looked at what what an EMQP GMS client would be sending, and we essentially added logic for the service bus runtime. I to take care of it, but uh, the actual quotas and limits still, you know, still stick. So we can have a thousand views and topics combined. Mm-hmm. Uh, each topic can have, I think, uh, two thousand subscriptions. Wow. Well, uh-huh. uh, and uh, at any point in time, for a service bus namespace, which is equivalent to uh, you know an instance of uh, Active MQQ Manager uh, and okay. stuff like that, uh, you can have five thousand concurrent AMQP connections. Okay. Right. Now these are obviously upper limits, so you know depending on how much uh, you know, and these are all computationally intensive for uh, the broker to manage actively. So you know if you if you feel like you're getting close to pushing the limits, uh, you have to essentially um, you know, do a little little bit of better planning. Um, mm-hmm. Some simple back of the envelope math will help. Too. Yeah, yeah, algorithm book again. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and. Um, how many transactions per second? Just just for fun, you know. Let's say a very tiny message, and I'm sending you lots of messages. Do you have some tests? How many messages per second can you actually process? Yeah. So we so, so when we provision a service bus premium namespace, we provision in terms of messaging units. So we can do one, two, four, and eight uh, messaging units. On a per messaging unit level, we can expect about four MB, you know, messages coming in and four MB messages coming out. Mm-hmm. So it's less about the number of transactions; it's more about the size of the messages that you're sending. Okay. So if you send one KB messages and it's you know simple queue uh, that you're essentially pushing data into and receiving data from, uh, you would essentially be able to get four thousand uh, give or take uh, messages per second. Okay. What is and the now, message? These are, what is so, messaging so, yeah, unit? Is a threat? Uh, messaging unit is is our way of essentially uh, earmarking compute and storage. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the service namespace that you're provisioning. Namespace. Namespace is like a server, and inside the server you have partitions, units, right? Uh, yeah, which will, so essentially, yeah, namespace is essentially a logical container that contains all of your queues and topics yeah, like a- and subscriptions. Yeah, and for this logical container, we would give some actual resources, which would be measured in terms of messaging units, so one, two, four, or eight messaging units. Like bulkhead pattern, right? So you can, mm-hmm. 
Okay. And how many uh, messaging units can you have per namespace? So you can have anywhere between one and eight messaging units. And every unit can uh, have? The idea, uh, the, no, the, the, the number of queues and topics uh, are pretty constant at this okay. point. Um, but yeah, the, the idea is that if you have any kind of spike in your workloads and you want to, let's say, you know, it's start of business and uh, start yeah. of business day or close of business day and you have processing that runs around that time, you can essentially scale up your processing for only that much amount of time and then bring it back down when the, the workload reduces. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, when we, you know, when you scale up, you pay more money, but we bill only on an hourly basis. Mm-hmm. So if you use for a couple hours, uh, you know, if you have spiky workloads for a couple hours a day, you only pay the overage for those couple of hours and then you're back to normal. Okay. Um, yeah. Can you have cross namespace communication? Uh, so at the moment, we don't have it as a first class experience. You need to write your own custom pump that'll drain messages from one okay. uh, queue, from one namespace and, and push it to the other. Uh, but it's something that uh, some customers have recommended that we add so for you know more more B two B use cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're we're considering it. We don't really have any uh, strong timelines to share at this point. What we had in some GMS projects uh, inside uh, mm-hmm. uh, enterprise actually without cloud is uh, that there was a problems network problems between the clients and the server. It was a MQ series back then, and the solution mm-hmm. to the problem was that uh, we could use so called um, I think this was called local queue so we could write mm-hmm. the messages locally they were a buffet for mm-hmm. us and they were forwarded mm-hmm. uh, back to the main server and the advantages of course you know if there's something wrong with the network uh for for a millisecond or second they were buffered mm-hmm. so do you support something as well like this so so we don't support a local queuing mechanism with stored and forward uh mm-hmm. right now uh what we typically do is that our, our sdks have custom uh, retry pol- so default retry policies, uh, exponential backup, uh, which can also be overridden by uh, you know by applications who need a custom retry policy, mm-hmm. uh, and that'll ensure that the connection is rebuilt whenever there's a there's any kind of network hiccup. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so so that's where we are right now uh, for uh, as as a possible workaround for store and forward to reduce application downtime. This is how I started uh, our conversation because we know the active MQ instance between was mm. is what I had in mind. Right. If there is a cloud, it's right. not necessarily reliable. I could misuse my local ActiveMQ as a cache or mm-hmm. store and forward mm-hmm. instance and do it, right? Right. But uh, is your um, service bus item potent? I mean, if I have retry, what can happen? That the duplicates happen or is it safe? So there is a, there's a way to have duplicate detection on the send side. Uh, all you need to do is essentially pick, uh, you know, check that box and uh, then set up a window of time within which you want the duplicates to be detected. Okay. So uh, you can go from 30 seconds up to 14, up to seven days, I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, and what that will do is that if you send messages with the same message ID, uh, service bus will silently accept the message, give you the acknowledgement, but then discard that uh, if you send the same message ID in the last whatever time period that you've mentioned. Okay, but this solves the um, problem elegantly. Because if this is the, yeah. the case, then it is exactly the same as the ActiveMQ. Because what this would do is it would mm-hmm. try you know, to reach your server. It will pull your server anyway. Yeah, let's say let's say your application, uh, you know, your your sender application sent a message and then died before the act could be received back. Mm-hmm. But on the service bus side, it's already taken that message and committed it to storage three times and and you know sent sent the act back. Mm-hmm. At that point, uh, the application will restart and say, "Hey, I didn't send this message. I'm going to send it again." And service bus will be like, "Yeah, don't worry. We we got you. We know uh, you have group detection on. Uh, we'll we'll give you an act back just to say this message is complete." Um, but uh, we'll discard it and we'll look at the original copy that you sent a few minutes back. Okay. How old is yeah. the uh, the service bus? No, oh, I think we're coming up on 10 years at this point. And 10 years? Just to move. Yeah. I thought you implemented yeah. this the last two years, you know, so something like this. Oh, no. So so the, the team that is working on service bus is the same team that uh, also worked on MSMQ, uh, which obviously uh, is, is one of the early Q offerings along with... Uh, IBM MQ series and uh, Tipco, uh, so it's the same the, you know, the same knowledge base that we're working on. Yeah, this is what I thought because what you're mentioning right now is not trivial. It is uh, no mm-hmm. well uh, well thought, and there are some you know corner cases we're discussing right now are already solved, and probably parts mm-hmm. of the MTS Microsoft Transaction Service team as well, right? Mm-hmm. I would yep. think. And mm-hmm. um, what's what strikes me how how obsessed you are with, with the standard, which I really like, because, you know, if the standard is implemented well, we can, mm-hmm. we could actually use this uh, Microsoft uh, Asia 
system bus or your GMS server as the main server, mm-hmm. just, you know, because yeah. we, we can. I mean, if it works well, we can just use it. It's not a big deal. We can send ephemeral messages. For instance, also for communication mm-hmm. between sites, you know, I have two locations mm-hmm. for my company. I have two regular servers and will misuse your uh, me- um, uh, message as a service, right? MES, message as a right. service platform. Just mm-hmm. to communicate mm-hmm. between between the sites and send messages back and forth. That's exactly right. And and Adam, you know the the value add over here is not for for folks to move to service bus and have to reconstruct their their business. All they need to do is point to service bus, and then they can leverage everything that a cloud native service can offer, right? Which is you know high availability. We have integration with availability zones across the the regions that Azure supports availability zones in. Mm-hmm. You can have uh, you know data well geo replication. Uh, we currently support metadata, so you can pair up a primary and secondary namespace, and any kind of queue topic subscription you create will be copied over. Mm-hmm. And in the event that one region is not accessible, you push a failover button, and your application can, you know, have a, a recovery time objective of under ten minutes because your your alias will just point, you know, your application will automatically point to your secondary namespace. Uh, and the idea is that we want to close this gap and, and allow data replication so that you can have a recovery point objective. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is something that the customer can uh, can configure. Um, you know, so so the idea is to essentially okay, how can we build a, a, a nice business continuity disaster recovery story for customers who have been you know working with Java and Spring workloads uh, for a very long time, and how can we help them modernize their application stack? We are right after the AirHex TV. So now, uh, before that, there was a question and answer show, and I get um, questions now regarding. JMS and messaging, uh, and mm-hmm. how to use messaging in project. And I always said, you know, uh, JMS has nice SPI, but don't even try to cluster this thing. And the problem mm-hmm. is, it's really hard. And why it is hard is, if you think about topics or queues, they are basically mm-hmm. singletons. So uh, right. to do it right, uh, you, what you will have to do is, um, I think this is the only solution is, to have mm-hmm. you know one master queue and and one master topic. I, I mean per name, right? Like the singleton mm-hmm. instance which sits somewhere. And then a couple of you know fallbacks or followers, and then a kind of Paxos algorithm which you know uh, elects you know the leader, and this done right is n- non-trivial. So this is uh, always mm-hmm. the same problem. And uh, how it works in your case? Do you have like a, a master topic and then a couple of you know followers, or you have because it's a hard problem. You know, if I send you a message to a topic, the message is there. It's just, it cannot be just you know. At, Two locations at the same time, except you have already quantum computing in place. You know there, 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 there is there is a storage, a memory somewhere. This is the primary mm-hmm. memory. You know, you know how right. the replication is actually working. So, so right now we only replicate uh, in the same region. It's mm-hmm. not across regions. That's something we are going to be you know working towards building. Yeah. Uh, but right now we're in the same region. Obviously, we have three copies of the storage. Yes, still. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But you have yeah. three copies of the storage. So what it means is. Uh, I mean, copy of the storage means the copying takes time. So probably what I can mm-hmm. do is I can, you know, adjust that. I can configure whether I have to wait until it replicates or is asynchronous. Is it right? Can I can I configure this? You know this? So so within the same region, we want to make it as as abstract as possible. So okay. you you don't need to configure anything. Yeah. Uh, you essentially you get it by default. It's just that when you have availability zones, we'll put those three copies in different data centers within the same region. Oh. So they'll all be in, let's say, U.S. East, but they'll mm-hmm. be a few tens of miles apart from each other. Um, and what we what we actually do behind the scenes is that we we depend on on storage. So we we build service bus on uh, on an Azure IaaS storage, and we leverage uh, the the zone redundant storage as well, mm-hmm. uh, which essentially builds on top of you know essentially two out of three quorum writes. Yeah. Uh, so so what that does is that the moment you send a message, we will make sure it's copied over to two out of three copies. And only once that is done, you'll get the acknowledgement back to you. Yeah, and then you have like a gossip protocol which replicates behind the scenes the message across the others. Okay, that's right. Yeah, but but the but the, but the main takeaway here is that we have two out of three copies already cut up. The third one is eventual consistency. Yeah, this uh, is why you need quorum. So if you have a five, I would need three, right? Yeah. So it means the replication obviously only works for persistent to- uh, queues and durable subscribers because for transient mm-hmm. it doesn't matter, right? So we only have the single. So and uh, right. if the Q just breaks. I don't. For me, it's no difference because it's abstracted behind my proxy. Then another Q wakes up. You know, there is another leader gets elected. It wakes up, mm-hmm. gets recovered from the storage, and we can just process the messages. That's right. Yeah. So basically, in the event of uh, any kind of localized fault, you know, let's say you know there's for whatever reason that specific data center goes down, not the region, just one data center. 
mm-hmm. as a utility for you know someone touch up the wires and stuff like that. Uh, within the those three copies, one's gone. Between the two, whoever has the the more the latest data will be selected as the leader, mm-hmm. uh, and that would start uh, you know accepting traffic from the the load balancer that sits in the front. How long does it take? Uh, five so, seconds. So I would say it st- stops the world for five seconds or something like this, and then you know. Uh, that's that's great. So you would barely see a momentary blip on your receive side. The send would essentially yeah. Uh, would yeah would be completely uh, transparent. Hey, I'm just curious. It's not like I'm just you know it's an interesting oh, yeah. conversation. Yeah. So um okay now potentially unfair question. W- when mm-hmm. I should use a you no know, uh, Microsoft Asia Service Bus and when mm-hmm. Kafka? God, oh, that's that's not an unfair question. That's one of the <laughs> most common questions. Okay. <laughs> So, so the, the common question is why do you have so many tools, right? And yeah. uh, like, okay, you you can't have you know our uh, one of our managers you know jokes about how you cannot drink soup with a fork, yeah. uh, or uh, you know essentially implying that you need the right tool for the job, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and and the way we break it down is to say it, you know it depends on what your definition of a message is. If the message is is a is a directed command a command uh, you know from one sender application family to to receiver application family, wherein you know what, who the sender is, what the message is, and what is the implied action from from your end. Uh, that's when you would essentially use uh, service bus. You know, it's a, it's a directed command. Uh, it's like talking to your your boss or your direct report. You you give out a bunch of commands and you, they execute and they get back to you. Mm-hmm. Um, when you actually think on the other side of Uh, you know, if it's if it's not a command but it's an event, then you think of events of two kinds, right? If you have you know streaming events, stuff like you know click stream telemetry, a user walks into your website and clicks all over the place, uh, you want to essentially study their their usage patterns, or you have an IoT sensor, you know temperature pressure sensor in the field, uh, which is sending you minute by minute or second by second, you know pressure sensitive and temperature uh, readings, and you want to essentially graph those out or, or process those appropriately or find out anomalies in that. Um, that's where you know you have the streaming event scenario. That's where you would use event hubs, right? And event hubs, you you know the the way you can look at it is it's it's like a queue from the front, uh, or uh, and and a data warehouse from the back. Uh, and when I say event hubs, you know I kind of compare event hubs and Kafka because they're comparable scenarios. Mm-hmm. And now because event hubs supports the Kafka protocol, uh, you can also use you know, the, the same way you would bring JMS applications into Service Bus. You could take your Kafka clients and connect to to event hubs. Okay. Um, so, so that's a that's a lot for meetups, but but yeah, you you get the idea. It's basically about streaming data that you want to do near real time processing, or you want to essentially store it, you know, with meetups capture onto a blob that you can then do offline processing as well. So, uh, so that's where you can essentially use the the meetups of Kafka uh, based setups. Ex- excellent uh, answer. Uh, I was uh, just curious mm-hmm. what you will answer because I get the question frequently. You know, because uh, mm-hmm. uh, why are you using JMS, the old technology, and not the modern Kafka, and uh, yeah. and um, What I really liked in your answer is you no know, the direction. There is a, like directing mm-hmm. message to someone. This is actually exactly why I answer the second part with Kafka. I answer a little bit differently. So uh, mm-hmm. what I what I usually explain is um, JMS and Kafka are actually two opposite architectures. You know, JMS is usually not persistent. Mm-hmm. Kafka is always persistent. First, it's more a database, more database than a messaging system. And what I also mm-hmm. say, you no. Know, If you know that you are directing the message to someone, so you're addressing someone like SMS, you know, this is message. Mm-hmm. But if you yeah. don't care about the others, is you just, you know, mm-hmm. you are just storing your point of view, your state of the world somewhere, yeah. then it's Kafka. Because you say, you know, exactly- at this timestamp, something happened and I'm storing you know, my context here. I don't care whether mm-hmm. someone will read it or not. Then it's the perfect Kafka architecture. And, exactly. And, and, and the funny story is, you know, people come to me and they say, oh, we don't like JMS, we would like to use Kafka. And uh, the funniest I, I, <laughs> the funniest request I ever got is they wanted to have Kafka without persistence. You know? Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and I jokingly say, okay, what you also can try to do is, you know, you have GMS without messages. It's also oh, even better. Then. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. There was a tweet uh, from, the, from the Apache Kafka uh, Twitter handle that says, Uh, you know, this is a public service announcement. Kafka is not a queue. Uh-huh. So if you have a queuing queuing uh, use case, please use any queuing. Just you know, this is my PSA. Please use any message queuing setup, and you know, preferably service bus. Uh, but don't use Kafka if you're using if you're using it for queuing. Right? Yeah. Uh, and, and another way to, to say it is that you know whether you want to implement a server side cursor or a client side cursor. You know, with the server side cursor, the server decides what needs to be sent, when it needs to be sent. Um, and and who needs to process it? 
with the client side cursor, the data is essentially thrown onto uh, you know a, a, a fat pipe. Uh, which is Kafka, but the client can decide when it wants to read and from what point it wants to read. That's why you have the concept of reading like a log and essentially rolling back your your checkpoints and you know going, you know you know zooming forward and, and stuff like that, like like a tape. Yeah, right. So, but, but so that's you're saying Kafka this, plays. yeah, exactly. But what you said right now is like the client would like to decide. You know, this is mm-hmm. this is right, but I would see um, what a client sees is the you know mm-hmm. the state of now and the history. Mm-hmm. And now the That's question right. is whether the client is interested in the current state, and sometimes you need a window. Let's say you would like mm-hmm. you know to compute an average rolling average of the last you know five minutes. That's right. This is perfect with Kafka, with GMS. I mean, almost mission impossible. You will have to store somewhere, and and what Kafka does, you know, it it is stateful actually. It it, it is able mm-hmm. you know to 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 keep your state somewhere, so you can have such co- mm-hmm. calculation the computations, and GMS is just you know. Simple mes- messaging, uh, yeah. or or you could use you no know, cache invalidation. Let's say you have a, a CDNs worldwide, and mm-hmm. you would like to invalidate the cache. You could perfectly use your Asia service with a topic, you know, and listeners which invalidate the cache or replicate the cache, for instance. Right? You could use it because in That's CDN right. it's not a big deal. Then Australia gets a, the, the you know the message a little bit later than Germany. Let's say mm-hmm. this is like you know this this where you can perfectly use a GMS. And Kafka would be completely wrong because uh, in such a cache you are absolutely not interested in the history usually, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. That's that's exactly right. So um, nice. And can developers just start and play with your bus, or you mean what they have? Have they call you know you or your manager or how to start with Microsoft Azure Service Bus? It's it's absolutely self-service. Uh, they can just go to the Azure portal. Uh, it's portal.azure.com, uh, as simple as that, and go and provision a brand new service bus namespace for themselves. Okay. Uh, and utilize the connection strings and, and start chatting with it. And how expensive is it? So if I would do it and play with it, do I have to pay something? Or, or probably yes, but I, how, I mean, can I, is it a developer account or something like developer program or whatever? Mm-hmm. So so service, so we do have a free tier uh, uh-huh. for service bus uh, standard, which allows you a uh, certain number of operations. Um, apart from that, once you're done with the free tier, service bus has, I think it's a consumption-based plan, so okay. uh, you pay for the number of messages you use apart from a base charge. Uh, and the service bus premium, so actually for JMS 2.0 full support, you will need service bus premium. Okay. That's the only, that's only place we support it. Uh, that comes to, I think, about 90 cents per hour, and we bill on an hourly basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, so on, on a per MU basis, actually. So per MU per hour is about 90 cents. Yeah, but th- uh, this you should change. You know, I don't know whether there is someone higher than you at Microsoft, but mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I would propose that uh, you know have a GMS to O in the free tier for developers mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. otherwise it's hard to know to try out. Yeah, I understand. I mean, the part of the idea was that you know uh, if, if there's if there's customer demand, we'll, we'll definitely consider it. But the idea is that a lot of folks needed the free tier so that they could try out their test and you know uh, you know developer workloads, and uh, the you know the reason. We at least pointed it for now was to say if you have a localized active MT that's running, you get the exact same features. And with Spring, because you have Spring profiles, and even with Java, you can have different uh, you know de- you know running modes for Dev, Test, QA, and Prod. You can actually switch out the broker as appropriate. Uh, so so yeah. that's that's something as a as a workaround temporarily. Uh, yeah, temporarily. But, yeah, we'll- because for me, I would I have to admit I would never try Asia with proprietary API. Really, because the time is, you know, to pity. So if I would do something, then with the standard API, familiar API, so just my feedback. So I would just, I wouldn't care about, you know, 10 messages per day are okay, but I would like to have my standard APIs. This is my personal take. Absolutely. Cool. Anything you would like to mention which you forgot? Or we covered all the features? Probably not, but... Uh I think I think we covered all the features. Obviously, the, the core value add is uh, you know to make it easy for customers to migrate uh, the service bus uh, from their existing Java Spring workloads, uh, and at the same time leverage everything else that comes in with the cloud native uh, you know messaging PaaS offering. Uh, so yeah, I encourage everybody to um, you know to try it out, and if there's any you know queries, comments, concerns, uh, feel free to reach out to ask service bus at Microsoft.com. Okay, perfect. And we'd be happy to chat further. How people can find you on Twitter? Oh, my Twitter handle is Ashish C one, so A S H I S H C one. And uh, GitHub, do you have still GitHub as a manager, or are you just you know just doing PowerPoint? Uh, I, uh, 
Uh, no, no, I, I, I still get to dabble with code. So my GitHub is uh, A-X-I-S-T. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, and we can we can add the, the links. Okay, then uh, you know the last uh, how to call it uh, mystery about me. I never did actually mm-hmm. a Spring project, but I did a lot of GMS. So on, for <laughs> me, it is a very interesting discussion because I could use it in all my application servers, microprofile runtime. So it was still added value. Also, I don't like mm-hmm. XML a lot, but still nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, because they they sort of realized that, and they realized you know application properties would be a little less cumbersome. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you still have to work with the Palm XML with Maven and uh, the, the the dependency injection in application know, service. I'm... My Maven is forty lines of code. Wow! You see, huh, that's not bad. Yeah, yeah this is uh, you have to ask Bruno Borges about me. You know, you will find, <laughs> find out how, how I operate. So it's uh, forty lines of code. It's very very thin. And uh, let's say this: application properties mm-hmm. is shorter, but this is we are yeah. in um in a brief moment of 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 happiness. Because what I already <laughs> see on the horizon, YAML. <laughs> if, Yet another markup language. If we get the YAML, I mean, then I, I would rather, you know, would like to have the XML back. I would say. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you. I hear you. Okay, bye. Thank you, Adam.